From Hayama, Japan, I'm Frank Ling. And from Chicago, Illinois, I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's show, neurotransmitters and monkeys. In addition, we're joined by Stephen Gubster, who will discuss the Little Book of String Theory. So stay tuned for all this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And the world famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. program i'm frank ling and i guess that makes me charles lee how you doing frank pretty good it's springtime here springtime for the emperor uh they're, they're actually adopting the ipad here I, I didn't know the ipad was an orphan turns out and this is quite interesting is that it's being described as black ships analogous to commodore perry's black ships that were invading japan a hundred years ago so i don't think there's any technology leader which can beat it over here right now not even sony I think they're falling behind for a while, actually. Well, I'll hail the great Steve Jobs. Yeah, I thought he was Zen or something, right? He's the son of Zen, sent down to Earth to save us from ourselves. But he has a biblical name, so... Uh, if I recall, God actually tortured Job quite mercilessly. And... <laughs> Maybe he's turning around the tables. There's still science going on, of course. What, pray tell, is going on in science? Well, this one's actually very practical. It's about binge drinking. One of my favorite pastimes. Yes, and indeed it can actually have permanent effects on your brain. You know, I, I could use some effects on my brain. Oh, so you're not interested in losing more brain cells, losing spatial reasoning then? If I had those things to begin with, then I guess it would be a concern. <laughs> Anyways, it turns out this was done with monkeys. Uh, Reese's monkeys were given an alcoholic drink and afterwards they were examined. Well, they were done over 11 months, but what they found out was the brains of those that drank the alcohol had substantial damage, loss of cells in their hippocampus. Did the way they take them out to a bar thing and order them shots of Jaeger? So apparently it was a controlled experiment, so citrus-flavored alcoholic drink. It's a tang screwdriver. More or less. And blood levels were that of an intoxicated monkey binge drinking. <laughs> of course, we're all familiar with the blood levels of an intoxicated monkey are. It... I thought in the wild they basically go nuts and throw coconuts at people when they're drunk, or even if they're not. So the difference between a uh, drunk monkey and a not-so-drunk monkey is just really how accurately they're able to throw those coconuts. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> this was work carried out in our very favorite journal, actually. I... The Proceeding. Of the National. Academies. Of Sciences. Penis. <laughs> All right, Frank, maybe those drunk monkeys could use a good hangover cure. Like aspirin? Well, how about a little bit of acupuncture? I thought the force was not real. Force is real, but they're not exactly sure where the force is coming from. So is it a chemical thing then? That's been the contention, exactly how does acupuncture work? And there have been a, a number of different hypotheses. One of them is that the needle triggers the brain to release you know, opium-like compounds called endorphins, or just the placebo effect causes endorphin release. Wasn't but... there some study 
that show that even if punctured at points that were not considered acupuncture points, you would also release these endorphins? There are all kinds of studies that are actually showing that these acupuncture needles result in some kind of measurable beneficial effect, but it was really unclear exactly how it was working. So recent research done by neuroscientist Megan Nedegaard uh, at the University of Rochester looked into the chemical mechanisms of this. And what he found was that the needles seem to stimulate the release of adenosine. Okay, isn't that adenosine that's in your brain? It's the same neurotransmitter that you find in your brain throughout the body, and it also acts as something of a local anti-inflammatory and anti-pain. Mm-hmm. Uh, they found is that when they stuck these needles in mice, and there's like a 24-fold increase of adenosine at the site where the acupuncture needles were injected. But is it site-specific? It is site-specific, so right around the location where the needle's been injected. So they tested this various ways. They actually showed that you can block it with adenosine blockers and you can enhance it with certain adenosine receptor enhancers. So it looks like that the effects of acupuncture needles is basically to release adenosine. And that is what results in the relieving effects that you get. Wow, what surrounds us? I'm not sure how adenosine relates to the chi. Yeah, that's a mystery. All right, anyway, well, this was published in Nature Neuroscience. And that's all for a look at recent developments in the world of science technology. This is the Grok Science Show you're listening to. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, uh, Professor Stephen Gubster will join us to discuss the Little Book of String Theory. So stay tuned. to the Grok's Science Show. Well, the universe is a truly remarkable, yet perplexing place, and understanding the basic properties of matter at the most fundamental level continues to be a mystery. How does string theory fit into this picture? What is the theory, and what does it tell us about the universe? Well, joins today to discuss this issue is Professor Stephen Gubser. Professor Gubser is a professor of physics at Princeton University, author of numerous scientific works on this subject. He has now penned the new release, The Little Book of String Theory, which explores the field of string theory for a general audience. Professor Gubser, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Professor Gubser. Thank you very much. Well, thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, this is really a very fascinating book, The Little Book of String Theory, which uh, I gather is actually a take on another book, The Big Book of String Theory. Uh, yeah, that's, that's not a bad guess. Uh, there's a professor at Santa Barbara named Joe Polchinski who wrote two-volume textbook on string theory that I've used in courses I've taught, and he calls it Joe's Big Book of String. So I figured I'd make the companion volume for the layperson, and uh, since it is rather shorter and I hope more to the point, I called it the little book of string. <laughs> all right. Well, probably of interest to uh, all those people out there who are wondering just exactly what is string theory? String theory is the attempt to unify all forces of nature into one framework, and the framework that we've come up with is where you assume that the fundamental constituents of matter are not point-like, but stringy. In other words, they have one dimension of spatial extent. So these are all the very fundamental particles of the universe that we've, we've heard about? That's right. So for instance, the electron would allegedly be a vibrational mode of a string, quark would be a different vibrational mode of the same string. So it would be unifying in the sense that there's only one thing in the universe, thing is a string, and that the different particles we see 
are just different motions of that fundamental object. So how can we think of these strings? What are they? Well, they're a little bit like the strings of experience, you know, where, where they have some length, and if you pull on them, they pull back, so they have a tension. But uh, unlike the string that you can buy in a store, the strings of string theory can be pulled further and further uh, without ever breaking. And is it possible for one fundamental particle in the universe to change into another by changing their vibrational mode? That only happens where particles interact, when particles interact. So there's no possibility in string theory, let's say, for an electron to turn into a quark without doing something extraordinary, like emitting some other kinds of particles or interacting with other particles. So in this sense, string theory is a very conservative theory. It builds in all the rules that we've learned about quantum mechanics and quantum field theory, and then just extends them with ideas about gravity to this unified theory. The main aim is to describe, as I've, as I've already mentioned, the unification of all forces into one theoretical framework and to build in quantum mechanics and gravity into that framework. And that's been an aim of string theory since, well, since before the middle 80s when, is, when, when string theory first really burst on the mainstream of theoretical physics. But there have been some new efforts in the past five or ten years applying string theory to more immediate and perhaps tangible problems. For instance, one of my favorites is the application of string theory to the description of heavy ion collisions. Uh, Such as the ones that are to be investigated at the uh, Large Hadron Collider? Yes, the Large Hadron Collider will have a heavy ion program as part of their main mission. Uh, Right now, there are heavy ion collisions being performed at Brookhaven National Laboratory. There is a smaller accelerator named aptly the Relativistic Heavy Ion Collider, and for the past several years, perhaps uh, six or seven years, they have actually been colliding these heavy objects, gold nuclei, and they then see what kind of particles come out and infer what was going on just after the instant of collision. And that's where there's an effort to make string theory directly relevant to experiment, to describe that complicated initial state just after the collision. I see. And has string theory been more successful in describing that process where other theories have failed? It has succeeded in describing aspects of it well. I'd say it depends on who you ask whether string theory is winning over other theories, because there is an accepted theory of strong interactions, strong nuclear interactions, called quantum chromodynamics. And string theory is not aiming to supplant that theory. Instead, it's aiming to give us insight about how that theory actually relates to the experiments. There are other strategies, starting with quantum chromodynamics, to understand experimental phenomena. And my take on the matter is that there's no silver bullet. This is a hard experiment. The theory is also hard. But string theory has become one essential tool for understanding what's going on. I see. Wasn't it the case that for some time, one of the critiques of string theory was that it really was able to make very testable predictions? Yes, so that's true. This whole business about unifying all the forces of nature, this unification is generally believed to occur at very high energy scales, much higher even than the ones accessible at the Large Hadron Collider. So it's hard to directly test the idea that's, that's really being put on the spot. Do the forces unify into a single framework? Is that framework string theory? Okay, that's something where it truly is hard to test directly. So you can only get at it indirectly. Now, string theory has, for years, 
been closely associated with the idea of supersymmetry. Supersymmetry is a very predictive framework, and it, it is, in fact, one of the great white hopes of the Large Hadron Collider that they will discover supersymmetry. If so, I'd say that there can be scarcely any doubt that string theory is on the right track. So that would be one main line of predictive power in string theory that I think you know, should not be underestimated. But there are these other lines of prediction that have to do with heavy ion collisions, for instance, that I think are, are interesting and, and have been even checked against experimental reality. What exactly is supersymmetry and what uh, would be a result that would come out of the Large Hadron Collider that would prove that? Supersymmetry is a hypothetical, at this point, hypothetical symmetry of nature, which says that whenever you have a particle like an electron, there is a so-called superpartner with the same charge and a different spin. Now, these superpartners, if supersymmetry were a perfect symmetry of nature, would also be, have the same mass as the electron. We know that's not true. We know there aren't particles like this that are observable in the world today. The only way that they could exist is if their mass is quite a bit bigger than the electron, but then they could be discovered at the LHC as new particles. Uh, experiment is hard. <laughs> at, the, at the Large Hadron Collider, if you produce a particle which is a candidate for a superpartner, you still have some ways to go to be sure that what you're seeing really has to do with supersymmetry rather than with some other unrelated idea in high-energy particle physics. So, you know, getting a smoking gun for supersymmetry is going to take a while, even in the best scenario. Hmm. Isn't one of the interesting features of string theory is that it, in some formulations of it, it requires uh, several extra dimensions of space? Absolutely. There's a definite set of calculations that you can do which leads to, to the conclusion that there are six extra dimensions of space. I see. And wh where are these dimensions if, if they exist at all? Well, if they exist, they have to be tightly curled up, so tightly curled that we can't perceive motion in those dimensions. Or another possibility is that they're not perhaps quite so tightly curled up, but we are stuck on some brain that is at a definite position within these extra dimensions. So like flies on flypaper, we can't get off. And, and so we perceive our ordinary four dimensions because those are the only dimensions in which we can move. You, you talked about brains. What are they? Brains are, in a way, the, the dirty little secret of string theory. <laughs> I said near the beginning of the interview that the charm of string theory is that there's only one kind of thing in the universe, and that thing is a string? Well, it ain't quite so. <laughs> what you find when you start doing string theory is that the theory itself demands the existence of additional objects. They all can be described starting from a string, but these extra objects are called brains, B-R-A-N-E-S, which is uh, an abbreviation of membrane, and that's an appropriate abbreviation because these are objects like membranes which have more than one direction of extension. So, so they're like, like surfaces or, or hypersurfaces. Whereas a string is just one-dimensional, these brains can have several dimensions. It's not possible then to have this theory without these brains existing then, is that? People tried for about 10 years, and gradually the, the wheels came off. And in about 1996, after I guess 11 years of modern superstring theory, finally Joe Polchensky, the same one who wrote the big book of string, pointed out to us all that D-brains were absolutely irrevocably part of the theory. Hmm. 
So what does this say then about the various forces that's being attempted to be unified in string theories? Do they also exist in these other dimensions as well in some other form or some other extension of it? Well, the answer can depend on details, Mm. but let me give you the part of it which is easiest to formulate. Gravity exists in all dimensions, almost by definition. Mm. Gravity is the dynamics of space-time. That was Einstein's key insight. And so whenever you have space-time, you're going to have gravity. The other forces of nature, for instance, electromagnetism, are not about distortions of space-time, or at least not about the distortions of our four dimensions of space-time. So the ways that you can get electromagnetism in string theory are somewhat various. Electromagnetism could be confined to a brain, or it could have to do with the vibrations of extra dimensions. It's sort of very hard to conceptualize in our normal three-dimensional world. How can we sort of wrap our hands around this? Well, we could take a a historical historical view. Um, Long before string theory, there was an idea of Kaluza and Klein in the early 20th century that Einstein pursued very vigorously, that if there were just one extra dimension, then gravity in that one extra dimension could in many ways mimic electromagnetism in our four dimensions. So, so this, was, this was the basis for some of Einstein's attempts at a unified theory. And, and string theory, in a sense, brings that whole idea back with some new twists and turns that basically make it work better. So that's the root of getting electromagnetism from extra dimensions, but then electromagnetism from a brain, that's just different. There can be a property of a special kind of brain which just says, here is where electromagnetism lives. What uh, are both the major theoretical and experimental challenges to, to string theory right now? Well, in terms of grand theoretical challenges, the simplest one to tell you about it is that we just don't fully understand what the theory is. We don't have a formulation of string theory that the practitioners regard as fully satisfactory. And as years have gone on, we learn more and more diverse things about string theory. It's becoming harder and harder to see how you would start with, with just one equation and clean up the, the entire subject. So we're in a sort of expansionary phase. You know, the, the whole subject is growing bigger and bigger, and yet we feel that it is deeply self-consistent. And in order to put our finger on that, we would need to come up with some more complete and, and unified presentation of the subject itself. So there's, there's the grand theoretical challenge of the subject. Uh, in terms of experimental challenges, well, I think there can be no question that the key challenge is for the LHC to tell us, is there supersymmetry at accessible energy scales, or is there something else? And if it's the something else, then what is that? And how, how does it feed into our ideas about string theory, or, or how does it guide us in different directions altogether? What do you think the prospects are for the LHC to to tell you that? I think they're good. There's always uncertainty when you start up a a whole big new experiment at such larger energy scales than have ever been probed. And there's always some chance that they will see not much that we don't already understand. But the energy range that they chose, according to accepted, widely accepted tenets of quantum field theory, the energy range that they chose is one in which something new must happen. There's a a concept called naturalness, which basically says, does a quantum field theory make sense internally? 
and, and it has to do with energy scales. And, and the fact is the naturalness criterion starts to fail right around the energy scale where the LHC is operating for the quantum field theories that we know and use and widely accept. So it feels like, gosh, this is a really well-motivated experiment that ought to turn up something quite interesting. And so, you know, it is on the basis of this kind of argument that $10 billion has gotten invested in this machine. Uh, we are running slightly out of time. I, I'm curious, uh, how did you yourself become interested in, in this field of physics? Uh, as an undergraduate, I did some work with Professor Igor Klavanov, who then became my PhD advisor and now is one of my colleagues at Princeton. And this, you know, this early work had to do with string theory and statistical mechanics, which is a, a branch of physics having to do with, with uh, finite temperature. So, you know, that early work really left me feeling that this was the, the topic for me. And when I then came back to Princeton as a graduate student, it was 1996, and D-brains were new, and string dualities were new, and there was clearly only one thing to be doing in theoretical physics, and that was string theory. So I did it. Hmm. And do you think that the field has made uh, a lot of progress? Well, you're asking about the whole, asking me about the whole baseline of my experience, and that that makes it uh, hard to remove my own bias. So I, I would say yes. If I look, if I look uh, as compared to what we understood in 1996 compared to today, uh, it's pretty impressive. You know, this this whole field, for instance, of applications to heavy ion physics, was undreamed of in 1996. That that has just bloomed to an extent that I would not have believed back then. Well, I'm curious if maybe you just have a take-home message for all those people who are interested in string theory and what, what you would like them to know about it. Oh, I think I'd, I'd say draw your own conclusions. There's been a bit of, of debate about whether string theory is good for anything and whether we should keep doing it. Rather than weigh into that debate in any predictable fashion, I would say, look, take a look at my book, see what you think at the end. All right, well, the new book is called The Little Book of String Theory, and uh, Professor Gubster, I want to thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thank you. And you're just listening to Professor Stephen Gubster discussing the little book of string theory. This is the Grok's Science Show. Coming up in just a few minutes, it's the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week. So stay tuned.
All right, well, it's now time to play the game, the Grokatron 5000. It is our supercomputer formerly known as Deep Blue. Today, the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic string or a particle. So for the following five individuals, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know if you think they are more string-like or more particle-like, and maybe a little reason why. Professor Gubbs, are you ready to play the game? Okay. Okay, here we go. String or particle, uh, person number one, it's the golfer, Tiger Woods. Oh, I guess I'd, I'd make him a string, not a particle. I've never met the man. His, his game seems to me remarkably complete. And since string theory is aiming to be a complete theory, let's, let's make him a, a string theory type, type of guy. All right, number two, uh, string or particle, it's the uh, real estate mogul Donald Trump. Why don't I say particle? Yeah, with, with Donald Trump, he's either on or he's off. He's either there or he's not. And, and that's like a particle. Strings are a little more gentle. <laughs> Uh, number three is the uh, former governor of Alaska, Sarah Palin. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I couldn't. I think I couldn't even venture. A, I, I couldn't venture a choice in her case. Okay. <laughs> for Steve Jobs. Well, you know, for the same reasons as Tiger, I would go for string, string theory for him because he builds these computers which integrate vertically from hardware to software, and, and that's very much like string theory is trying to, to unify fields of physics. Uh, and finally, number five, the President of the United States, Barack Obama. <laughs> <laughs> well, the man has certainly tried to have a complete agenda for America, <laughs> but it looks a little uncertain uh, as to how far he'll get. So I think since the uncertainty relation applies to particles and strings alike, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to split the difference and say that he could be either one. <laughs> right. Time will tell. <laughs> All right. Well, Professor Gubster, I want to thank you very much for sticking around playing our game. And again, of course, talking about your book, The Little Book of String Theory, Thank you very much for your time. It was my pleasure. Bye-bye. Welcome back to the program. And it's now time for the world-famous question of the week. And joining us this week is the mighty Stephen Hawking's. That's right, Frank. Feel my power. I am the mighty Stephen Hawking. Wow, I like your English accent. We all speak this way at Cambridge. So something's been bothering me, Steve. My jeans are ripping apart. It's like these strings. They just can't hold themselves together. So what is a string anyways? The strings are the fundamentals of the universe. The articles of the universe come from the strings. They play the soul. They play my life. I am the strings. I am the strings, Rick. I am the strings. The strings. <laughs> I think you got to hit control alt delete or something. And now you know the strings, Frank. All right. Next time we can talk about the rubber bands. <laughs> And that's all for this week's edition of Grok Science. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Groks, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. We're also on Facebook. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.